<coughs> I never carry a watch. I don't have one. <laughs> the sun is generally my time clock. And since I can't see any sun. <laughs> Let me say, huh? give me a wave. All right. Uh, we find it very refreshing to come down to this camp. We are refreshed by the fellowship. Uh, we really enjoy ourselves. <laughs> All right. So I want to express our appreciation for being able to come and share with you from God's Word. Let's bow in prayer before we again turn to the Word of God. Father, it is a great privilege this morning to gather in your presence, to know that you will faithfully minister into each of our hearts with your truth. And knowing the truth, Lord, we know the freedom that you give. Freedom, Lord, from being enslaved to our own ways and sin, and freedom to worship you, as we should. We commit our time to you now, and we ask that you will speak to our hearts from the word of God. We give you thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the things that I did not cover and did not have time last night is one of the benefits of having an overview of the whole of the Bible. So we're just going to go through uh, a PowerPoint setup which expresses something of an overview of the whole of the Bible. I have borrowed from what we call CMI, Creation Ministries International. They had seven C's of history. I put in, I think, 11. All right, I've just added a bit to it. Um, giving us an overview of the whole of the Bible so we begin to grasp the whole plan and purpose of God in the history of this creation which we find ourselves in. So let's go through step by step. It's up there. It's called the overview, the 11 C's of biblical history. So we've got Genesis chapters 1 to 11. We separate out the scripture. <coughs> this area of scripture is basic to the whole of the rest of the Bible. If we get our foundations wrong, the structure will finally come down somewhere. If we lay the foundations right, the structure will stand the pressures that we experience going through this world. And when I'm in Fiji, because we have three main rivers that come from Mount Victoria in the interior and flow down to the ocean, they understand a principle because along the, village, along the rivers, there are villages all along the rivers. And those villages depend on the river you will go fishing in the river, you will have a bamboo craft to carry you down and up the river, generally down the river, and then you will have um, water to wash with, you'll have water to cook with. Everything depends on the river. It's a water of life. So the challenge I put before them is this. The, all the rivers have their source in what we call Mount Victoria. They all flow from there. There is a source to every river. So if I'm an evil personage and I carry a deadly poison and I want to do as much damage as I can to those who are dependent on the river, where do I put the poison in? Right at the beginning. 
Satan has done that. We call it evolution. It's taught in the education system across the world. Wherever I go, that is the system of philosophy of origins that your Bible is not right. And the reason your Bible is not right is one, the Bible starts with a complete, perfect, unaffected creation. That's where it starts. They start with a big bang or some explanation and from there, over millions and billions of years, everything has evolved. And that's the philosophy that has undercut the whole of marriage because marriage has its basis in Genesis 1 to 11. Every value we hold has its roots back in Genesis 1 to 11. And in Bible colleges where I travel, that is under attack. Rare is the Bible college today that will accept a literal six-day creation. That's rare. So we are fighting a battle for truth and if we don't get the foundations right, the structure comes down and already the structure is crumbling, you will realise, when the area, well, who's a male and who's a female? The whole area is in chaos across the world because we have let the foundations crumble. We have the church. We have let the foundations crumble and we are reaping the consequences which are developing very rapidly in the world in which we're living. So that's the first part. So I want to take you through Genesis 1 to 11, the C's that Creation Ministries puts down here, which is very good. So you've got creation, which is a six-day literal creation. Then you go on to condemnation. Adam, he sinned. Sin entered the physical, visible world after it entered the spiritual, unseen world. Lucifer was the first to sin. But then it affected, by his entry into the Garden of Eden, it affected the physical, the physical visible world in which we find ourselves. By one man's action, sin entered. Paul depends on the facts of what happened there to establish what we heard this morning, our position in Christ. Because Paul teaches in Romans 5, one man, one action, and the consequences. That's Adam. Another man, Christ, one man, one action, and the consequences. And he contrasts the two. In an amazing teaching in Romans 5, he sets out clearly that if you don't have an Adam, a real Adam, and if you don't have a real Garden of Eden, and you don't have a real fall, you will never understand the second man, the Lord from heaven. The last Adam. So we are dependent on that. Next one down, you come to corruption. And it will vary in your translations, but it says, the earth was corrupt. And what the King James, they corrupted his way on the earth. Corrupted his way. We say, what is his way? There are two ways. It's called the way of Cain in the book of Jude. There is the way, they have gone in the way of Cain. The other was Abel's. Abel's approach to God was with understanding and faith. 
and I covered some of it last night. He approached God's presence knowing he was a sinner, knowing that there was a debt to pay for sin, knowing unless someone paid that debt, he would come under the flaming sword to try and have life. So he sacrificed a lamb or one of the flock and fulfilled four requirements that picture the Christ you worship. That is, he was perfect. He was the firstborn, firstborn from the dead, first to rise from the dead, Greatest triumph the world has ever known. Death has been conquered. He has risen as a man in a flesh and bone body. There is a glorified man now in heaven. And you sung about him. First one you sang. How many of you knew that song you sang the first time? Beautiful words. You think it through. Beautiful words. Out of Ireland. We'd hold nothing against Ireland. <laughs> there are some good things come out of Ireland. <laughs> Beautiful words. So you see, the, the, the Abel understood that he would be firstborn. You see, we have sheep. We don't have them anymore, but we had sheep. And if you understand sheep, they become mature and able to, to um, conceive about one year old, and then they will have their first lamb. That's the firstborn. Then they'll have another lamb. That's the second born. Then the third lamb. And that they just keep bearing like that until they die. That's why you keep sheep. <laughs> you kill them off. <laughs> All right? Abel chose only the firstborn. It means he had understanding. He just didn't take anyone. He took the firstborn. Why? Because Christ would be firstborn prophetically. Firstborn from the dead. Not only was he firstborn, your Bible tells you he took that, that offering that he had there, he cut it right open, he slid it down the middle, took everything out till he got to the kidneys right at the backbone. He had to open the whole thing out. And there is in the kidneys, in any animal you kill, it's covered with fat. We call it, from the butchers, suet. All right? Which some of you use and used for different things. God said... When you're dealing in Leviticus 3, Leviticus chapter 6. My food, you must not eat the fat. Now he's not talking about the fat around the meat, he's talking about that fat. It's called the fat portions when you're reading your Bible. And it is defined as that fat. And the reason is this. To get at that fat, you open the whole animal out. Because God says, I do not look as man looks. We look on the outward. He said, I look on the heart. I go right inside and the only one in whom I found perfection was my son. So Abel had understanding. That's God's food. He is satisfied by his son. He is perfect. Totally perfect. And then, slit the throat, the blood was shed. And the lamb took his place. He'd learnt it from his parents. He knew what happened in the Garden of Eden and that was there. The fire took the lamb because God's wrath 
is like a consuming fire. And it's consuming where sin has so offended him. His justice must be satisfied. Abel's was untouched. That's his efforts. Oh, sorry. Cain's was untouched. That's his efforts. You will either be saved by your works and you can't or you'll be saved by faith in Christ and you will be. So there is a split at the beginning of the history of our world. There are only two religions in the whole world. One is based on what you do. The other is based on what Christ did. And that separates the whole world out and you are either in one section or the other. You are in either in Abel's section who trusted Christ or you're in Cain's section and you're trusting your works to give you entry. So there's no other religions in the whole world. They all find their roots there. So we, we come to this amazing thing, corruption. They corrupted his way on the earth. And because it had become so complete, till in the tenth generation we are told, God said to Noah, you only have I seen righteous before me in this generation. means Noah was the final man to trust the way of Abel. The rest had totally rejected it. So remember, Lamech was the ninth generation. Methuselah, you go back before that. They were righteous men. But in the tenth generation, Noah, the only one who accepted the way of entry into God's presence. So what happened? There was a catastrophe. The greatest catastrophe the world has ever known and it's mentioned time after time in both Old and New Testaments. The event that is written into the crust of our earth and we call it the fossil record in which is buried millions and billions of creatures that once lived and were buried in the sedimentary layers, we call them sedimentary rocks, laid down underwater all over the world, including Antarctica, lie these creatures that once lived in this world and buried in a catastrophic flood. So when I am having to address schools or higher education, you have to present evidence, scientific evidence. So what I do is I take Darwin's book and I quote from Darwin's book because there are things that Darwin said. And one of the things that he said is this, it's just a short sentence. Darwin understood the teaching of geology from his day and that was there are slow processes in which creatures die and the sediment comes down and that covers them. It hardens and another creature is living many years later and it dies and so you get progressive layers all over the crust of the earth. It's a slow, gradual process. When you come to the fossil record, Darwin wrote in his book, understanding that was the process, he said, no soft-bodied organism will be found in the, in the fossil record. It's in his book. A few years ago, in Adelaide, in South Australia, <laughs> a man walked into the university with rock in his hand and showed it. And they laughed at him because there is a jellyfish 
identifiable, the medusa of the medusa of the jellyfish is there, identifiable genus and species like we have in our world today. There it is on the, the sedimentary rock, perfectly identifiable. Now, a jellyfish is a soft-bodied organism, in case you didn't know. It's no vertebrate. So here is jelly, and it's jelly. You'd watch him on the beach. It's jelly, isn't it? <laughs> you can shake it. It's jelly. And one day in the heat, and it's just gone. Perfectly preserved. What did he tell you? Rapid burial. He said, come with me to the Edikara Hills at the back up above Adelaide in the interior there. There is hundreds and hundreds of fossilised jellyfish. Now that's, now, that's the beginning. Now there are many other places where they've been found and they begin to reason out how did they get buried, all this. The conclusion is catastrophic, instantaneous burial. The only explanation we have is Noah's flood, the biblical explanation. Because God said, I will never do it again. That means the massive tsunamis, the quaking, the tearing apart of the earth, the movement of sediment was so catastrophic that they were buried like that. There was no time for air. It's no time for breakdown. In fact, some of the fish that you get in your fossil record, they smell. Still, after supposedly millions and millions of years. I'm not going to go into the evidence. Like there's a massive evidence today which was not present when I had to go through and I did not have answers. But now there are scientists who have come into the belief that the Bible is a true history of our world and therefore have taken the evidence and shown it fits the biblical account of how everything happened. But remember this, your young people are programmed never to hear that. You go into the higher education today, you will never hear the evidence that you will get from believing creation people, scientists who hold to a biblical account. So you come to a catastrophe that destroyed the whole world. After that catastrophe, you have three generations, Ham, Cush, Nimrod. Three generations. When Noah came out of the ark, he understood Abel's worship. He repeated it after he came out of the ark. He offered every clean animal and every clean bird. He put on that altar and God confirmed it with fire from heaven and the same truth began the creation, the, 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 the re, rejuvenated earth after the flood. He commenced there. Three generations. Ham, Cush, Nimrod and they had totally turned their back, they had become totally idolatrous. And God stepped in with what we call confusion, the Tower of Babel. And the nations were scattered across the world as idol worshippers. The whole of the nations of the world were idol worshippers. When God called Abram, Abram was an idol worshipper whole family were idol worshippers. And in, in Acts 7, Stephen gives his understanding. The God of glory appeared to Abraham. So God is about now to start giving to the world an understanding 
In all their idolatry, he will take one man and from that one man, he will form a nation and that nation is to be a witness to the nations of the world that he is the living God. That's, that's the history of our world biblically. And so that nation, if you go on in your text, uh, keep going, next one down. <coughs> We're dealing now with Israel. Go down in, in, in this section. I put it down like this. C is for calling. God called Abram. Called him Abram, changed his name to Abraham, and all that. So from Genesis to Malachi, Genesis 12 to Malachi in your Bible, the whole message is about one nation. Did you ever realize that? Where are the Gentiles? Where are all the other nations? Rarely will you hear anything about the other nations except in their relationship to the nation of Israel. And Israel is the whole occupation of God from Abraham right through to Malachi. All you're hearing about is one nation. Isn't it? Pick up your Bible. It's all there. It's all Israel. So at Malachi, we find out it stops. And we come on, keep going. We are dealing with two seeds now. Christ, and the cross. They're the four Gospels. Christ and the cross is central to the four Gospels. So now we have Israel as a whole in the Old Testament, but now we come to what we call the New Testament, or the New Covenant, and we have Christ and the cross. Here's a focal change in the whole of God's dealings at this point. And so we go on from there and we come to another seat called the church. And when we come to the church, we are looking at Acts to Revelation. The church is in Revelation, but from the book of Acts through to the book of Revelation, it is all the church, isn't it? From that point, we come to the consummating book of the whole of the history of our world and it is the book of Revelation. And when you come to the book of Revelation, I put that kind of thing at the end because the church and Israel are going to find themselves spoken about when you step into the book of Revelation. Both Israel and the church are spoken of in the book of Revelation. Then we come to our understanding. We have an Old Testament and we have a New Testament. Testament means covenant. And God says, I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that was written in tables of stone. He said, I'm going to write it into your mind and I'm going to write it into your heart. And he deals with the issue of forgiveness of sins. So there are two covenants. Israel and Judah are in view. But we Gentiles, by virtue of the mercy of God and the purpose of God, have had the gospel come to us while Israel has been put on one side. And 2,000 years of scattered nation all across the world, suffering intensely, so often, 
and they're sidelined. And the church has become responsible to carry the scriptures to the nations of the world, which it has done and is still doing. Remarkable things are happening at present in the rapidity with which people who have never had the Bible in their own language can now get it in a matter of months. That was not available before, but now with technology and what's happening, very quickly things are happening. You imagine you've sat in a language and you've never heard or read your own scriptures. You've never heard them in your language. To have them in your language. The thrill. He speaks our language. And the message comes and it's happening now. So we come to this whole section here, an overview of history. And what I want to do is this. <clears throat> I want to take you, and take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 13. <clears throat> We're going to leave that one behind. We're going to take a parables. Matthew 13. And we're down in verse 44, down to verse 46. Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46. Two parables Jesus told. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Just two parables called generally the treasure and the pearl. Question. Did Jesus ever teach and not use parables. Take your Bible, Matthew 13. We go back. Verse 34. Matthew 13, verse 34. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. That's amazing words, isn't it? You ever thought it through? He never spoke anything to the crowd without using a parable. And notice it gives you an explanation. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So Jesus spoke to the crowd in parables. He would open them out to his disciples, but he spoke to the crowd in parables. And the reason, seeing they will not see etc. But the Bible says this, when he spoke in parables, he spoke of things that were hidden from the creation of the world, meaning the mind, plan and purpose of God back before he ever formed this world. When Jesus spoke in parables, he said, I will utter things that have been hidden from the creation of the world. These parables are not just little stories. These parables are the mind, plan and purpose of the heart of God. Known unto God are all his works 
from before the foundation of the world. He knows the end from the beginning. That's the God we worship. So when you come to these parables, you are not touching just little stories. You are opening out things that have been hidden from before the foundation of the world. And we pass by these little parables and we think, yeah, they're nice little stories. Have we plumbed the depths? And this morning, for a little while, I want to plumb the depths that belong just to these two parables. We call them the treasure and the pearl. To give us some understanding, take, uh, to go to Matthew 13 and go across to verse uh, 52, uh, verse 51. Matthew 13, verse 51. Jesus is speaking <coughs> after he's given these seven parables. He said, Have you understood all these things to his disciples? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Notice his wording. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom treasures new and old. This is your storeroom, isn't it? It has old and it has new. We are going to do just that. Treasures come. The storeroom we have, he said, you're a householder, you have the storeroom, you are to bring out treasures from old and new. That is God's method of teaching. And we are going to do it. And I think it opens out a principle, opens out our understanding that these are not just little stories. These have immense messages in these parables. So we're going to just take the two parables we've read and we're going to look at, and I've, I've done it by way of questioning. All right, that's the, the one that we read. The parables compared. Now when we take the two parables, I'm just taking you through the way we should approach. These two parables, we notice, have similarities. True. Don't you notice they have very similar things? But there are differences and this is the mark of identifying importance because you have a certain DNA in you which they liken to apes and chimps and monkeys and since there is a similarity you have the same ancestor. Now, it's not the similarities that make us who we are, it is the differences that make us who we are. We are unique. And that is the mark of creation. In fact, there is a stamp on the created world when you are investigating it as a scientist and it is unity in the midst of diversity. Meaning every human is different. But every human is a human. Apes are apes. But they're only apes. They are not human. They may vary as apes, and they do. The same as humans vary as humans. Every star, the Bible tells you, differs from another star in glory. A scientist didn't know, write that. Paul wrote it under the inspiration of the Spirit, saying there are billions of stars out there, but each star differs from another because the Creator has a stamp, unity in the midst of diversity. 
that is true of the body of Christ. Every member is different to another member. But you are put into the body and you are unique. No one can fulfill the role you have been called to do in the body of Christ. God sets them in the body as it has pleased him. So we have an immensity about the God that we worship, which we find it difficult to grasp, particularly in the, the size of the universe and all that goes with it. So we step into these parables and we go through. So the firstly, the similarities. What do we notice? So this is what we notice. Both describe the actions of a man because you see one parable has a woman. In these seven parables, one parable has a woman. Right? And she is handling a thing called leaven, yeast. The bakers use it, all right? The action of yeast is this. Yeast is mixed with the dough, you allow it to warm, and it breaks down the carbohydrate, gas is given off, you have breakdown taking place, corruption is setting in, and the bread rises, doesn't it? Everywhere you touch leaven in your Bible, studying back in your Old Testament, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it must be absent because Christ had no sin. He said, this is the bread of God which came down from heaven and my flesh I will give for the life of the world. Perfection, sinlessness, acceptable to his Father, the only person that fits the category. He is sinless. This woman, she is an evil woman. She takes the leaven and she mixes it until the whole is leavened. You have some wicked women in your Bible and you have some good women in your Bible. Discern the difference. Jezebel was not a good woman. So you have these kinds of women in your Bible and you have these women who are godly, good women in your Bible. There are distinct differences. So we come to this and this woman does it. This is a man. All through you'll have a man. A man sowed the seed in the field. A man did that. Then you get another man who does different things. So you come to this similarities. One, they're the actions of a man you are observing in both parables. Two, both have a precious object in view. Treasure in one, pearl in the other. They are different objects formed in different ways but they're both precious. Next one. In both he looks. This man is looking for something. He wanting to find it. Alright. In both the man sells all he has. All he has he sells. Next one. In both, he buys. True? They are the similarities that occur in these two parables. But there are differences. Now note the differences. One is a treasure. The other is a pearl. They're two different objects. Both are counted as precious objects. But one is called a treasure. The other is called a pearl. Next one. In one, he bought the field. 
Are you clear? The treasure is in the field. He bought the field. The other, he bought the pearl. Please notice there's total difference. He bought the field. The other, he bought the pearl. Next one. In one, he found it and he hid it again. That's strange. He found it, the treasure, and then he hid it again. The other, he found and sold all he had. That's what he did. All right? Let's have a look. Take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter... 19, I think. Just wait a minute. Exodus 19. We're going to read from verse 4 down to verse 6. Exodus 19, verse 4 to verse 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now let me ask you a question. Were they carried on eagles' wings? Because your Bible says, I carried you to myself on eagles' wings. Did Israel come out of Egypt on eagles' wings? So it's not literal. It is meant to be understood with meaning, but it's not literal. What happened was not eagle's wings. Is that clear? All right. So when you get to Revelation and the woman is given the wings of an eagle, you'd better apply the same thing. All right. The woman who flees into the wilderness has the wings of an eagle because a flood is sent out of the mouth of the dragon to take her and destroy her. So when you read eagles there, you better think about eagles here. Here, at the first deliverance Israel experienced, I brought you to myself on eagles' wings. You're going to read when you get into to, to Revelation chapter 12, the same thing, eagles' wings. So you better think, well, it's not literal wings they're going to have. All right? We are meant to compare Scripture with Scripture. God is dealing with Israel and bringing them out of slavery of Egypt and they are about to be destroyed, particularly at the Red Sea. You step across into your New Testament and God is about to deliver Israel because they're about to be destroyed by an army. The flood, in the King James it says, the dragon poured out like a flood to take the woman. If you're reading Daniel three times, the flood is an army. So all I'm doing, you will find as I go through, is taking scripture with scripture and saying, look, if it happened here like that, 
You can apply the meaning here. Is that clear? That's the principle, basically, we have to work on for understanding Scripture like this. So he says here, out of all nations, please notice, verse um, 5, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, out of all nations, you will be my, what? Treasured possession, my peculiar possession. Literally, my treasured possession. So you're, he is calling Israel as a nation his treasure, isn't he? Now, the number of times God mentions a subject carries a message. The number always carries a message. All right, take your Bible, turn to Deuteronomy 7. I think, yeah, it's on the board. <coughs> Yeah, we, best if you find it in your Bible to know it's there, all right? Deuteronomy 7. <coughs> we'll read from verse 6. So it reads, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of what? All the peoples on the face of the earth. That is, all the nations, he's chosen one. I've chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. What to be? To be his people, his treasured possession. I think you're beginning to hear things. There is a parable and the parable is about a treasure, isn't it? Alright, keep your Bible. I think it's Deuteronomy 14. Go down your next one. Deuteronomy 14. We're down in verse 2. Just take this, the verse itself. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2. God says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. God couldn't be more exact. If you ask God, what's your treasure? You would have to have one answer. It's Israel. It's my treasured possession. And all the nations hate her. Is that clear? She has a unique calling by God and she failed, didn't she? Because the whole world had become idolatrous. We Gentiles are idolatrous. And we still are. As nations. But this one nation, God was determined would be a testimony to the whole of the nations of the world. There is a living God, there is a true God, and he is to be worshipped. Because he is a jealous God, and he said, My glory will I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. It arouses his indignation, his, his jealousy, because jealousy means a strong regard for what is rightfully yours. 
The Lord our God is a jealous God, a consuming fire. So, go across to Deuteronomy 26. I think. Yeah, Deuteronomy 26, verse 18. Jeremiah 26 and verse 18. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession. They're strong words. I am not saying it. This is God. And he's calling this nation his treasured possession. You can say, treasured possession? It's a wicked nation. Do you know? When Balaam was called to curse Israel, God said, I see no iniquity in her because they offered for their sins. They pointed forward to a perfect lamb. God had chosen them for testimony. So God calls that nation his treasured possession. And by the way, it's wicked. As we all were... <laughs> Wicked in the sight of God. Till our righteousness was not our own, our righteousness was Christ. And that when God sees us, he sees us as in Christ. We heard it this morning. Seated in Christ. Five minutes? Really? So we come to this, and there's one more. All right, take your Bible, turn to, I think it's Psalm 130, uh, yeah, Psalm 135 and verse 4. Thanks, I didn't want to interrupt there. <laughs> Psalm 135 and verse 4. Um, we'll read from verse 3. Psalm 135, verse 3. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praise to his name, for that is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. God has his own plan. God has his own purpose. And we frail humans need a revelation from God to understand that's true. And five times in your Old Testament, God calls Israel his treasured possession. His treasure. Five in your Bible is the number of God's grace. For instance, there are five offerings the whole burnt offering, the meal offering, a grain offering, the peace offering, fellowship offering, it's called, the sin offering and the trespass offering. Five offerings. By grace, through what Christ did, because all these shadow Christ, by grace, through what Christ has done, we have access right into the presence of God. We are New Testament. We are under a new covenant. The veil has been rent. 
There's blood on the mercy seat. We have a great high priest. We have access into the very presence of God. Amazing truths. And we are Gentiles. We're not part of that old covenant. We're not part of those workings of God back in the Old Testament. We have come in. We were afar off. But we've been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now let me share with you while we go, because I might as well put it here. Do you know the devil uses numbers too? But the, number, the way God, the devil uses numbers is totally different. Listen carefully. <clears throat> As they were crossing the Red Sea, Israel, remember they came up on the other side and Pharaoh and all his army, all his chariots, his 600 chosen and all the chariots of Israel, the whole army of Egypt, whole army is there down in the dry seabed with the walls of water on both sides and they're out to destroy Israel. And God says to Moses, lift your rod. And the walls gave way and they came in and they smashed the whole army. One immense army in one action from God totally destroyed. And God said to Israel, the enemies which you see today you will see them no more. Do you know what those enemies said? I will overtake. I will destroy. I will gain five times. I will, I will, I will. Five used by the devil or whoever belongs to him is man's efforts to accomplish what he wants and he never will. You were reading Isaiah 14. Lucifer, what entered his heart? I will ascend up. I will be like the most high. Five I wills. So remember this, whenever you're dealing with it, numbers have a very important place. They apply to God and his ways. But they also apply, the devil uses the same kind of numbers, but it's a different message. Are we clear? All right? So we have a treasured possession. Why is this treasured possession so important to God? Why did he start the nation of Israel? How did he start it? He started it like this. You get to Genesis 11. Tower of Babel, the scattering of the nations has taken place. And before that, as you read through your Genesis 1 to 11, you will come the son is born into a family and there were other sons and daughters. Every time. And you go right through till you get to Genesis 11. And what do you find? But Sarai was barren. She could have no children. She was dependent on the giver of life, the creator of all things to put life into deadness. The idols can't do it. Buddha didn't rise from the dead. Muhammad did not rise from the dead. No other personage in the whole history of the world has conquered death. It is the king of terrors. Isn't it? We'll all face death. It's an implacable enemy. It will take you and I but we don't preach a message that finishes there, do we? We have a message of one who has conquered death, 
And the power that was done to do that is the same power that works in you and I today. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you. He will quicken your mortal body. And Paul is dealing with the issue of glorification in Romans 8. This body will be made like his glorified body. Death has been conquered. The first fruits have been harvested. The crop is coming in. That's the message we get from agriculture. It's the message we get from Christ's resurrection. So he chooses a woman who cannot. It's impossible to demonstrate he is the creator of all things. Idols cannot. You read Jeremiah. says, do these idols give rain? Do the clouds themselves send rain? Is it not you, O Lord, that sends rain? And we are in a drought (laughs) where we are. You realise you're in the hands of God if you're a farmer, or you should, (laughs) today. So when we come to Scripture, we are dealing with God has a treasure. And that treasure, according to your Bible, is the nation of Israel. Now I want you to think about the parable you've heard. I think I've gone on with that. Now, We'll just leave it there. I'm not sure if I did. Yeah, Yeah, I'll do it now. I want you to think about the treasure that's there. In the parable Jesus told, remember these are things hidden from the creation of the world we are looking at. It says, (coughs) he found the treasure. He found the treasure. But once he found it, he hid it again say, what a senseless thing to do. You've got a treasure, you go find the treasure, you find it, then you hide it again. It was hidden. Then you go and hide it again. But your Bible says, he bought the field. What is the field? The previous parable in Matthew 13, Jesus defined the field is the world. God so loved the world, not just the Jew. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. What does it mean? God found his treasure and it was to be the nation of Israel. And God gave them direction but they rebelled against God and they turned to idol worship. And God warned them when Moses stood on the edge of the Jordan and could not cross over, he detailed to Israel their history in Deuteronomy 28, 29. He detailed to Israel their future history. He said, when you go into the land, this is what you'll do. You'll go after their gods. You live the way they lived and God will scatter you through the world. And he did. Assyria came down and took the ten nations in the north. Ten tribes. The Babylonians came in first and then they took them into captivity into Babylonia. And Israel was scattered through the world. So he found them. He hid them again. And he went and bought the field. The man had the ability 
to purchase. That man had the ability to purchase. It's the same man in both parables. The same man had the ability to purchase. Tell me, can you buy your salvation? No man can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him that he should not die but live forever. The redemption of your soul is precious. You cannot redeem another. You could die for another but it means nothing to God because you're a sinner. You can't pay for your own sin. You are totally dependent on God stepping in in your condition because you are helpless and hopelessly lost. Sin is our master till we come to Christ. So we come to a field which is the world and in that field there is a treasure. God found it and then we find he hid it again in the world and he's done it. But Moses said in Deuteronomy 30, he said, I will gather you back into your own land and I will do better for you than in former times. So if Solomon's reign on earth, and you read it in your Bible, was amazing, it was a reign on earth where peace for 40 years in Israel was known. And the land was productive and gold was so immense and available. It was so amazing. We talk about seven wonders of the world. You know the eighth? It's the temple. It's never mentioned, is it? It was when the Queen of Sheba came, she, was, she said, I've heard, but the half has not been told. Here lies a construction planned by David. The Spirit of God moved on David, it says. In writing, he wrote it out and he gave it to Solomon. This is what God wants, the pattern of the temple. And Solomon set about building that temple on the place <coughs> where David had sinned against God in numbering the people. And thousands had died and David is in Jerusalem. He sees the angel, the angel of the Lord with sword drawn over Jerusalem. And he cries out, These are innocent. I have sinned. And God says, Purchase the threshing floor of Orona the Jebusite. And that is the place where David erected his altar and fire came down from heaven, consumed the offering that he had made. And he realized he was accepted on the grounds of someone taking for paying his sin. It was there that Solomon built his temple. It was there that Abraham offered Isaac. There are steps, steps, steps through the Bible till finally you come to the cross of Calvary. The temple is there. Jesus is on Golgotha. And he said, it is finished. And God tore the veil from top to bottom. Meaning, you can come. It's been done. You can come. There's no longer a flaming sword. It took his son. He is the tree of life. He lives forever. He said, I will give you eternal life. I will give you. It's a gift. I will give it to you.
So we come to this amazing scene we have here. Israel is a treasure from God. How is a treasure formed? Treasures are precious stones, aren't they? That's, the other is a pearl. This is, a, this is formed differently. A pearl is formed differently. A treasure is a precious stone. It's made up of precious stones. How do you do it? Well, an expert in gems and that sees in the earth a shapeless mass but identifies it as a kind of crystalline material, quartz. It comes in in different angles and everything. There are different colors, all this. It's shapeless. It is not attractive. But he will take that and he will pr start to process, to cut, to deal with that. And I went to a man one day, because I knew he was doing this. He said, tell me what you do. And he has a spinning disc like this, very hard carborundum kind of stuff, grinding away. He said, you put it here, it's set at an angle, and you cut. And you cut the angles, because he knows the rock, he knows the angles that are supposed to be there. But as he's doing it, he said, there's water dripping because it gets hot. You're watching a process. As the grinding takes place, there's heat. Have you ever been under the heat? That's your circumstances of life and the heat is on and there's water dripping. What's that? The word the word is being applied. You're understanding why you're going through this process. You but out of it, God is making a precious stone for his glory. The purpose of a stone is to reflect the light that comes on it and give honour to the source of light. Remember Lucifer? Clothed with every precious stone was his covering. What was his sin? He took his eyes off his creator and put them on himself and said, Aren't I beautiful? So he rejected his creator who was the source of light that gave him his beauty and looked at himself and it's the essence of sin, self-centeredness. Or if you like, self-esteem in the psychology world. And the cross ends it because we die and God makes us new creatures. That's the work. So we come to an understanding Israel is to be transformed finally into a reflecting treasure that will bring honour and glory to God. God will not fail in his purpose. He's going to carry it out. He is in the process of doing it now, but there are seven years ahead in which he, they will feel the heat and the water will need to drip till the treasure is what God wants them to be. It will be there. But what about the pearl? because the pearl is not a treasure. Let's have a look. How long have I got? Okay, stop there and we'll come back to the pearl. Yeah. <laughs> All right.